Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by Drs. Ryan LaValle and Kalia Johnson, where sometimes it's about occupation and sometimes it's just sassy. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Dr. Thoughts Podcast. It's everybody's favorite academic diva. You don't see me flipping my hair, but new haircut, (laughs) y'all. Can you say blowout? Blowout, blowout. But I am here with everybody's favorite, I'm going to say committee member because he is committed to doing the work, Dr. Ryan LaValle. And so many committees. So listen, we'll talk about that later, but yes, so many (laughs) committees. Um, But y'all, we are joined today with Dr. Betsy Francis Connolly, who is the Vice Provost and Dean of Interdisciplinary Health and Science at the University of New Haven School of Health Sciences, Department of Population Health and Leadership. But how I and Ryan have come to know her, she is also the chair of the board of directors for the Society for the Study of Occupation USA. Welcome, Betsy. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. I'm really honored that you that you asked me to be part of your podcast. So cool. (laughs) You know, we are super excited to have you because you, if, if if we can label you like a bomb boss of a chair (laughs) you are a bomb boss of a chair we absolutely have enjoyed (laughs) working with you um for sso usa so thank you for being on the podcast yeah we bomb ass yeah i like that (laughs) (laughs) both kalia and i were talking about um you know just being real and being fun and making some of this academic world and board sort of like a fun place to be and you immediately came to both of our minds because we've had so much fun and so much sort of joyful conversations and what can be always like sometimes a really dry space of like like Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> um, but you as the chair of SSO has brought so much joy into that space. And but also it's like you're not afraid to to you know say what's real and and talk the the talk of doing the work. So we were like we need her on the podcast because we've had so much fun in our other conversations and we think you're you're a sassy bomb that <laughs> Hey, um, I love all these adjectives. <laughs> you know, I well, think I, it's really important to be able to laugh at yourself, you know, and I and have fun because it, it's hard work, whether you're, you know, an academic, whether you're a practitioner, whether you're on a zillion committees, it's it's hard work. So you have to be able to have fun and laugh. Yeah, well, we definitely appreciate the the model you have provided for us. For, for having fun while while digging into this stuff. But I want to take us back for a second. Speaking of adjectives, you know, our listeners know there's a tradition on the podcast that um, our guests also name themselves as a favorite. So, Dr. Betsy, what are you everybody's favorite? <laughs> oh, man. You know, I one of my favorite roles is to be a grandmother. So I have two grandchildren, um, Harper, who's eight and Lola, who's six. So I think I'm the favorite Grammy. Oh, I love it. Everybody's favorite Grammy. I love it. And those are really cute names too, Harper and Lola. 
love that. That's wonderful. I love that. Also, like, I can't wait to be a grandparent. (laughs) Because you can parent. Yeah, I mean, I just like, that's the whole reason I'm going to have kids is so I can be a grandparent because you can just like spoil them and like give them back and like, teach them little things that their parents don't realize you're teaching them. And, and, And it's so it's so fun to go through that state that the little kid stage again because as a parent you, you're just sort of worried and you're focused and as a grandparent you know it's it's just it's so much more spontaneous I love that so in addition to being everybody's favorite Grammy what what else are you up to <laughs> well you know when I first became a dean um three deanships ago Ooh. uh I had, um, she niece- says, <laughs> she's like, I've been it three times. <laughs> you know, like, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sort of waking up is the groundhog day every day. But um, <laughs> when I first became a Dean, my niece and nephew uh, named me Dean Fancy Pants. And I, I thought, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but it's, <laughs> It, it, you know, family keeps you humble, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Dean Fancy Pants. I might start calling you that in board meetings. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Thank you, Chair Fancy Pants, for your emotion. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I won't do yeah. that. <laughs> or at least start um, your emails in that way, right? Yeah, there you go. So what does what does a dean do? Like what what is your responsibilities as a dean? You know, because I think a lot of our listeners are are OT practitioners, but also a lot of academics. And so for those who aren't like the program director position and they might be thinking of stepping into sort of a higher ed and admin role, what what is that? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, what am I doing? Um but clearly I'm still trying to find out because I keep taking these roles. But um <laughs> You know, a dean oversees multiple departments. And so um, you have the sort of the bigger picture. You also are representative of the university. So you have to juggle having, you know, supporting the mission of the university, the president and the provost with the needs of your departments. Um, So it's an an interesting leadership role. Um, I've learned a lot um, about how universities function, um, about accrediting bodies from from not just ACO but all the different accrediting bodies. I've learned what a pro forma is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't know what that that word was. Nobody taught me that in OT school. Um, so how to put together a business plan, how to develop new programs, how to mentor junior faculty. Those are all the things that I love to do, um, as well as as sort of navigating building building my own leadership team. Um, so my department chairs and program directors and mentoring them and, and having a really strong team because that's how you get the work done, um, as well as um, navigating the team um, above me. So so leading up and leading horizontally. So um, it, it's sort of like I don't play chess, but I imagine it's sort of like playing chess. There's lots of different things going on, and I really enjoy all of that. I don't know if I answered your question or I just rambled. No, absolutely. I think that that's, it's just helpful. I think particularly for maybe OT practitioners who aren't necessarily in academia to sort of understand where you're sitting at the university and 
and also why I think we asked you to step into this conversation because we have some questions about leadership and how to do it and what what it looks like to do it um, from like an anti-oppressive perspective, but also just in general um, as earlier career. Um, I don't know when I get to stop saying that, but I'm going to keep saying it for a while. <laughs> earlier career academics um, in that way. And so just very briefly, when you were in OT, did you what did you practice? What was what was that um, area for you? Yeah, so I was a mental health practitioner, and um, in the Boston area, in several different um, facilities um, and hospitals, I really liked mental health OT. I I felt like it was a really authentic place to be as an occupational therapist, and um, I really enjoyed having fieldwork students, and so really early on, I only practiced full-time for about six years. Um, really early on, I I wanted to go into academia. I wanted to teach. I wanted to uh, instill in the next generation of OT practitioners my love of, of um, psychiatric mental health OT. So, um, I, so I only practiced for about six years and then became a faculty member at the University of New England, which was a very new startup program in Maine. Um, you know, I was 28, I, I was young and you know, I wasn't much older than the students. Um, so that that's how I, what, what and I And then is that where you got your PhD? No, so I, I taught at the University of New England for a couple of years and quickly realized that I would need to get a doctoral degree. Um, to be considered, you know, legitimate in, in the academy. Um, so I looked around and about that time I met my husband and he um, was living in Michigan and from Michigan. And um, I, there, were, there weren't a lot of doctoral degrees in occupational therapy back then. So um, and he lived in Ann Arbor, and I thought, well, there's there's sort of a university there. Maybe I should move to Michigan and and see what the University of Michigan and and Wayne State and all the other big universities there have to offer. So uh, we got married, and I moved to Michigan, um, and taught at Eastern Michigan University while working on my PhD in sociology at the University of Michigan. So um, and I and I chose sociology because I thought that it would have really it, you know, so many theoretical foundations that that were similar to occupational therapy. Um, and I wanted to have a really strong research foundation. And I knew the sociology program there would, would provide that for me. And so you are the first chair of SSO who is not a PhD in occupational science. Is that true? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm 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 sort of going back and thinking in my well, Chuck Chuck didn't have a PhD. Oh, no, no, he is EDD, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. But I but think I that's think- that's also a powerful in that like you don't have to be a PhD in OS to be in OS, right? Like you can be engaging with the society and engaging with the science um, without necessarily specifically having a PhD in occupational science, which I also think you've modeled wonderfully for us. I think that's a really great point, Ryan, because I I think I would hope that the Society for the Study of Occupation SSO is broader and welcoming to all disciplines. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that makes 
the science of occupation so powerful is that when you have the perspective from not only occupational scientists, but geographers, um, sociologists, anthropologists, um, psychologists, I mean, you really, you get that broader, much richer perspective, I think. And I would also add, because I know we're, we're sort of talking about interdisciplinarity um, as far as like academic disciplines, but for our listeners to understand too, that society is not just for academicians, right? Like we're welcoming for practitioners and students, or even I like, I refer to as friends of the discipline or friends of the profession, people who just have an interest um, in, in occupation and um, and the study of, of occupation, that it's really really a place for you to come and explore um, and discuss those ideas. Yes, yes, I think that's a great point, yeah. Yeah, and so you, you moved to Michigan, you earned a PhD, you're doing some teaching, and then you get the idea, like, I'm gonna start running stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna take over the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, cause you know, as, as an early career academic myself, who has have given some thought, and you and I've had this conversation too, about um, sort of admin and higher ed, like how, how did you make that jump from faculty to dean? Yeah. Well, I, there was a few other steps along the way. Um, the OT program director um, and the director for the School of Health Sciences at Eastern Michigan both um, both left. Um, in fact, you know Virginia Dickey, who who left me at Eastern, um, who was a <laughs> mentor and role model. And, Did she come and to had... UNC from there? Mm-hmm. Ah, that's so funny. <laughs> tea, yeah. oh, the tea. The tea, but also we're real glad about it. We'll drink yeah. that tea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she left me. And um, so there are these two positions open. And I looked at sort of the other, I think I had, ten, I must have had tenure by then. And I sort of looked at the other sort of senior, relatively senior OT faculty member and said, do you want to be the director of the school or do you want to be the OT program director? Like, should we draw straws for this? <laughs> um, I became the OT program director um, and did that for a few years and then um, became the director of the School of Health Sciences at Eastern. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't see myself as an OT program director or director of a school or a dean. That was not something I aspired to. I really saw myself as a faculty member teaching and doing research. Um, but then when I sort of moved into these leadership roles, I realized I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed um, building that team, um, having having a voice, making things happen, problem solving. Those were all things that I enjoyed. So I I just kept going, I guess. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. keep going. <laughs> Yeah. And so um, around the skills that you like cultivated, right, to come into these positions, I'm sure, you know, having been program director and then director of um, the, the school and now stepping into, um, you know, the, the, the E-suite or, or whatever level it is there at your university by being, you know, dean and vice provost, like what are the, some of the important skills that you feel like you cultivated to really help you be successful in, in this position? 
Yeah. You know, I think to be a leader, it means you have to be really reflective of, of yourself um, and reflective of what your skills are and, and what skills you sort of innately have that you use. And I think, you know, it's sort of like the art and science of OT practice, that what do you bring to that patient-client interaction? And how do you use yourself as a therapeutic agent? And I think that as a leader, you do the same thing. So you um, you think about what you bring to that interaction. You know, what, what are my strengths? Um, I think I'm really organized. I think that I um, have pretty good interpersonal skills. I think as an occupational therapist, we're really taught to um, look at interpersonal skills and understand group dynamics. So I felt like I could do that. So I think it was building on what I thought is my strengths and then learning about and reflecting on areas that weren't as strong and how to how to improve those areas. So I think be, I think being a good leader means you have to be really reflective. Um, I I often at the end of the day when I'm driving home from work think about well that interaction went well that that's great that's good <laughs> I'm glad that went well and this one didn't go so well so what what was my part in that what could I have done differently um, and you know you know making sure that you continue to grow and 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 think about you know yourself as a leader and how you can continually improve. Um, and I read a lot. I, I read about a lot about leadership and um, to glean different ideas um, about what makes a good leader. And um, I had a mentor once who told me early on that the only leadership book I needed to read was the Shackleton story. Mm -hmm. um, Shackleton was a eight, late 1800s, early 1900s explorer um, um, in Antarctica. And his the the boat that he was on, I don't know if you guys know who Shackleton is, but the boat that he was on, um, must have been like a wooden sailing boat, um, got caught in the ice. And so it was crushed. And he knew he would have to, you know, no, nobody else was following them down there. There wasn't going to be a helicopter rescue. Um, so he successfully over a period of over over a year, maybe a couple of years, um, worked with his entire crew um, and finally did all these really daring things um, to keep them safe and to, to get them rescued. Um, and he did that by keeping up their morale, keeping them um, you know, it, it involved doing occupations every day. Um, so it, it was, it's a beautiful story. It's an interesting story. Um, and I think that that's, you know, reading about people that have sort of really risen in their leadership. So that's mm -hmm. so doing some reading, I guess, as well as self-reflection. Yes. It makes me oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I don't know if that's a, a true story, but uh, one of the things that I really heard in that, that I think leaders often get criticized about now is while you are taking time to reflect and read, but you're also doing right and engaging and cultivating um, relationships among people to keep moving whatever you're doing forward. Right. And so I really 
can appreciate that, that, you know, when you're faced with something that is hard, difficult to um, overcome, possibly that still, even with that learning, you're moving forward. And I think too often we hear about people saying so like, oh, well, I'm, I'm in a phase of learning or I'm reading without really doing anything. Um, mm. And so I, I definitely appreciate that in, in, in the story. But I'm sorry, Ryan. Yeah, one thing I was just thinking about as you talked about that, and you sort of brought it up as well, Clea, in, in these hard situations, and I think I've seen you navigate some difficult conversations, um, you know, in, in board situations or otherwise, but how do you how do you balance like the directness? Because I, I, I think that Kalia and I maybe um, have been <laughs> accused of being maybe a bit too direct in certain situations um, about how we do leadership or how we advocate or that sort of thing. So in those moments of like trying to keep a team uh, like in a, in a group or, you know, their morale high, but still being very direct about the realities of the change that needs to happen. Like, how do you balance that? How do you find those two sort of places to be where you're almost like saying like, you need to get your act together with a smile on your face? <laughs> <laughs> um, not to bring up Virginia Dickey again, but she's told me, <laughs> she told me once that, um, I could smile and say fuck you to people and they wouldn't realize it was an insult until they had walked away. <laughs> I don't know if that's one of my leadership skills or not. Um, I think it is. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that um, having those difficult conversations means that you have to be authentic. Um, so you know, I think that because I like to joke, I, I think I have a self-deprecating sense of humor. Um, I make fun of myself. Um, and that I think people see me as being authentic. And so when I'm having a difficult conversation, most of the time people trust me that I'm giving them feedback or making a decision Um that I think is the best decision at the time or or that I'm trying to give them feedback that's going to be constructive, even though it might be hard to hear. Those conversations haven't always gone well. And sometimes I've had to go back and say, let me try again. Maybe I didn't say that in a way that you could really hear or that was helpful to you. Um, so I, you know, it's it's learning those tough lessons and being able to apologize and um, move forward. Um, I think it's also uh, that authentic stuff is really important to me. Um, I, when I first meet with my faculty, when I'm in a new position, I share with them who I am and about who I am. Um, because people are curious, people are watching you. And I know people are watching me, everything from what I'm wearing to what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. So being self-aware and being authentic is really important to me. Um, yeah, I, I feel like now I'm just sort of rambling. So so what there is a- No, I think that that really makes sense. And, and I think that authenticity can also sort of disarm the defensiveness in some, in some ways. Um, and I think that we've found that 
it's hard also when you don't have those relationships, when you haven't been around the people that you're trying to advocate with, or you haven't been in conversations or in the room, even in this social age or social media age, when you're trying to like communicate or just over email, not be able to communicate that authenticity or the nuance of your communication. Um, it's, I think that's where sometimes it's hard because, you know, if, if we were to just sit down at a table, I think some people who find me prickly over like social media or over email would actually like, I'm like, I'm pretty nice. (laughs) Like like I can be, I can be direct, (laughs) you know, and honest, but um, like just recently at AOTA, I, I sat down with some of the board of directors and had a really nice conversation with them. And as I was leaving, um, they were like, oh, what is your name again? Like your full name? And one of them looked and they were like, oh, I've seen your name. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, glad they actually didn't know who I was, I guess, during the conversation. Um, But it was it just reminded me of like how sitting down, being authentic, knowing each other's stories and being able to put some cushion around the conversation is just so important for leadership and for team building and just doing the work together in a lot of ways. And I've found that a lot in our meetings together with the board. Um, There's just, it's not all business in the sense that it's task oriented, but it's business in the sense that you're creating good business by creating a morale and and like that's helping us move forward as a team and that's good business. Um, so not in the economic sense, but, you know, like in the working together sense. Um, mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. Um, and I think I've and I think I've seen uh, a lot of opportunities to learn in those moments from you and, and others. Yeah, thank you. I think, you know, one of the one of one of the good things and bad things with the pandemic is that we did a lot more virtually. And, you know, Zoom is great. It's, you know, we can see each other and talk, but being in the same room is really different. And um, an email, I always caution people over email. Like I always say less is more. Um, If you've gone back and forth on an email with somebody three times, then it's time to pick up the phone. you know, and I've said that sometimes I, that's been my email response. Call me, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to con- continue this conversation via email mm-hmm. um, because I think that you, you just, you lose that piece of here's the nuance in my voice. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Um, so, and, and you're right. I think that team building that time to build a team, whether it's, you know, SSO, board or my leadership team, that time that you put into it is really critical because you'll get more work done when you have a team working together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, you know, the, the, the care, the thoughtfulness, the intention, uh, being self-aware, um, you know, y'all already talked about being authentic. You know, those are all of the, the characteristics that we think about when we when we talk about good leadership, but I think all of us have also experienced, you know, very just toxic, even inhumane sort of leadership styles before. And even your example about the going back and forth on email uh, really took me back to a situation that happened a couple of weeks ago where I was like, okay, clearly we 
we're we're trying to get on the same page and can't, but the other person just would not let up. And it, it made me shut down completely. I'm just like, I don't want to deal with this person anymore. Like I'm I'm done. And you know, I guess in true cancer fashion, when cancers are done with you, they are done with you. <laughs> like, uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of dealing with or, or trying to manage the toxic leadership? situation I'm not, I'm not gonna say being in a relationship with a toxic leader right because who wants a relationship with that but <laughs> in, in those moments when you have to 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 confront I guess toxic leadership yeah I I was a, a dean at an institution that won't be named and I love the institution but the president at the time had been there for quite a while and was building her legacy and um was really toxic um very divisive, loved to play her leadership team off of each other, wow. um, would talk about, I mean, one of my other fellow deans would say, if you're not in the room around the table, then you're being dissected on the table. It was really toxic mm. and um, really hard. And I I think I learned more from that um, experience, <laughs> those years, um, because because you learn about how you don't want to lead and how, how that toxic leadership permeates the whole institution and doesn't move the institution forward in a way that could be so much more productive. So I, when you said toxic, I mean, I just immediately thought of that, <laughs> that those years and, um, how much I learned from that, um, how difficult it was, uh, a lot of tears um, and self-doubt um, and, and thinking about um, how do you, you know, I think you, you have to make a decision at some point that you either outlive that toxic leader <laughs> at the institution, um, decide what you can and can do or take um, and then, and then decide to leave if that's the, what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say to my program directors, you know, I will never ask you to do something that is against your ethics. And if it is, then you should tell me and you should, you should be like out of here because I, you know, the, that's, that draw, that's where my line is, where where my moral compass is, is where I, you know, I have to draw the line in the sand. And what does that look like to like, I mean, I feel like there's a certain amount of like you outlive, you leave, but when you are trying to like communicate to that leader, like this is a challenge, like this is a problem. You're, you're making my life horrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like what, what does that look like? How, what are the best ways? Like, cause you obviously also don't want to just like go straight to their boss or something. Like you want to try and have some sort of direct conversation with the person who's trying to be a leader. Um, but you know, and there's power dynamics in that. And so like, what, what advice might you give to like actually have that conversation or approach that, that feedback in that situation? You know, I think, um, to tread carefully because if it's your boss um, or if it's the president of a university, um, you know, the only person above the president of a university is the board. 
So if you go to the board and the board doesn't support you, it's a kiss of death. So yeah. you have to think really <laughs> carefully about, you know, that chessboard and what your moves are. Um, you know, I, I think what I did is I tried to do some reconnaissance. I tried to figure out who were my allies there, who could I trust? And you have to be really careful on that. Mm. Um, and how could I get some information of, so what is the best, how does this leader, what is the best way to come up and figure out this leader and, and approach this leader? Um, mm. um, and I didn't, I didn't do it well. I, I didn't do it well for several years, um, maybe ever there. Um, and, you know, I looked back and I looked at the mistakes that I made along the way. Like one of the big mistakes I made with this leader was I thought in the leadership team, her, her senior leadership team of the vice presidents and the deans, that when we were discussing a topic that she actually wanted feedback. Um, and I learned that that was not true. <laughs> 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 that my opinion was not asked for, even though it was asked for, she didn't want to know my opinion. And mm. especially if it didn't align with hers. Mm. So, um, and I learned that the hard way. I mean, I literally had somebody take me out of a meeting at a break and say, take me behind a door and say, what the hell are you doing? You know, be quiet, get in line, literally get in line. Wow. So, um, you know, I think it's that when I th said earlier, one of the mistakes I made as a leader is not knowing that I, my leadership didn't extend just laterally and to the people that reported to me, but my leadership extends above me mm -hmm. and I need to figure out how to lead above me. And mm -hmm. I didn't do that well there. That is such a good, because I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard that about learning how to lead above, right? Like we, I think sometimes we're, we're taught about, well, drawing on a practice example, right? Thought, thoughtful observation of, you know, what, what it is your, your clients are doing and what their occupational needs are, but also doing that thoughtful observation and sort of that, that very sort of strategic planning and, and learning how to lead above, right? Um, understanding the, the leadership styles of those that are, that either you report to or have to align to in some way. Because, you know, earlier you talked about sort of your role as, as a dean is that you, you're, you're an agent of the university, right? You have to fulfill the mission. But when that mission is also tied to that toxic leader, you're having to do this direct interaction and try to navigate all the, the BS, right? Yeah. I, can, um, I, I can imagine this particular situation for you was, it, it would probably make my stomach hurt. <laughs> you know? it, did. it did. It did. It was a really hard time in, in my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had the, the school, the college was amazing. The faculty were amazing. I loved leading that college. And so to have these wonderful 
through, you know, I sort of had naively, naively thought, well, if I just do my job over here and I'm a good dean and I have good outcomes and we have good enrollment and students are passing their licensure exams, I'll get left alone. And that, you know, that was sort of me going, okay, well, maybe if I just sort of put my head down over here, <laughs> nobody will notice the girl in the corner. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's, it's so it's so helpful to to think about well i've definitely heard of managing up in the sense that you're just like trying to get the work done from it but like uh, couching it in a leadership sort of role i think also helps to add a little bit of a different flavor to that and that it's not so task oriented it's also relationship oriented um but it also just really emphasizes the amount of strategy that is in this work and in advocacy in general or in systems thinking in that you you can't just go in like bashing and and bunting and you know hitting and like you know saying things directly you really do have to think about where are the trigger points for change um and where is there really no point in trying to hit a trigger point for change um you know and but that that comes through like you sound a little esp espionage and you're like reconnaissance and like, you know, like, um, but it, and sometimes that can actually be fun in the sense, like, cause I, I think this is a particular situation. I also don't want to scare people away from academia, you know, like getting to know people and the strategy of learning relationships and hearing how people move through the world to build a really good team. It can actually be really fun by doing that reconnaissance and hearing people's stories and hearing their background and what really motivates them a lot like therapy in in that way um but i think people underestimate the strategy it's like you can still be authentic and real and direct but you always also have to be strategic um and and when and how you bring those those attributes to the forefront of your, yeah. your work <laughs> absolutely absolutely i remember interviewing for a job and the faculty said to me so are you going to be are you going to fight the administration for us betsy and I just laughed and I said, no, because that wouldn't be helpful for you. <laughs> I have to have a good relationship with the provost and the president so I can advocate for you. And I do that through data, not through, you know, getting out the fisticuffs, you know. <laughs> oh, I love that. Give me some data all day long. Yes, yes. <laughs> but you're right. That's, that's, that's part of strategy, though, right? That's understanding what are people going to respond to and deans and everybody who's sort of in the provost cabinet, chancellors, presidents, what have you, boards, trustees, they wanna see data. They wanna yeah. know how, how does this affect the bottom line? And not that your feelings aren't, aren't data, they are, but they wanna see sort of the, the, the hard and the real, the tangible things that are gonna help them make decisions. Right, right, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, um, Gary Kilhoffner said to me once, um, Betsy, as a program director, what do you think my role is? What is, what is our role? I was a new OT program director at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, educate, you know, really wonderful, outstanding, competent OT students. He's like, nope. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Um, you know. <laughs> Do, do my research, do, you know, whatever. And he kept saying, no, he said, our job, Betsy, is to make the dean look good. And you do that by having those outcomes, by, you know, having strong student retention. 
Our job is to give the dean something to brag about. And I've always thought about that conversation in that, you know, and, and when I share it now, sometimes people are like, we need, we need to make you look good, Betsy. And I'm like, no, I look okay as it is. But um, <laughs> the self-love is real. I love it. I brushed my hair. I took a shower. I'm, I'm Come just, on, D, fancy pants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but to make, you know, to give me something to brag about. Like mm. I loved when my dental hygiene program director, you know, ran in my office earlier this week and said, a hundred percent pass rate. And I'm like, yes, you know, this gives me bragging rights, you know, <laughs> these are the things. And, you know, I knew that the faculty had worked really hard and the students had worked hard and, you know, that I complimented them and sent them, you know, congratulations. But those are the things that um, as a dean, as a leader, it's, those are, those are all the sort of strategy points of, you know, now I am rambling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe as like a final question, a content topic, um, when you think about your team and the the people that you are trying to brag about, like what are the qualities that you look for in team like dynamics and team, like the people that are coming into the team, who's a good team member um, when it comes to who you're, you're hiring or deciding whether they get into being your cool team or not? <laughs> yeah, the cool kid with the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I look, when faculty say to me, when I, I mean, we're doing a whole bunch of interviews of faculty these days, and they, they often say to me, what are you looking for? And I, and I say, well, you know, clearly from your, your vitae, you're, you're competent, you've got a research agenda, you, you've got good teaching evaluations, I'm looking for a team player. And they're always sort of surprised I say that. Mm. Um, and that's what I'm looking for, is somebody who's a team player that is, is gonna step up and, and do the work, um, serve on those zillions of committees that you talked about, Ryan, <laughs> um, or, you know, you know takes, takes their turn, isn't a, is not a prima donna, you know? And I think in academia, especially in doctoral programs, as you guys know, you, you really have to, um, it, it's, it's competitive. And so you have to work hard and you have to be the one raising your hand. And, you know, so we raise academics to be independent players. We don't raise them to be team players. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes it's a shift of, mm. um, you know, we're, we're all part of this team and we're gonna move, we can move things forward if we all row in the same direction. Um, and so, you know, I, not everybody, I, you know, not everybody's ever going to be, uh, you know, all rowing the boat at the same time when I look at my team. But if I can get most of the people to, and most of the people say to think, wow, this is, the, this is the boat I want to be on. I want to row with her. Um, then the others are going to, the others are going to go like, yeah, I do too. Or no, no, thank you. And I'm going to go somewhere else. So mm -hmm. I guess for me, being a team player is really important. And, and that means around honesty and trust and vulnerability and off, being authentic. Um, you can tell that you've been in New England for a while when you start using rowing metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Shackleton story about boats. 
So now, <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, we just really appreciate all of these nuggets of, of wisdom that, you know, we have been able to experience personally, but that you have, um, you know, really taken the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to, to share with, um, listeners for Dr. Thoughts podcast. So are there any um, final words that you'd like to share about leadership or for those who may be on the fence about pursuing um, a leadership position in higher education? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. I, I love doing this with you. And I think this is really fun. I'm really honored and humbled that you asked me to do this with you because you guys are so cool. I want to be in your <laughs> You're already in the boat. You're <laughs> leading the boat. <laughs> um, you know, I the one thing that I'd love to say to people is to get mentors and mm. always find yourself mentors, mentors internally to your organization and mentors externally. And um, I have had a couple of mentors that I, I think I've said this to both of you at other times that I have had throughout my career that I don't think I make a career move without calling them and talking to them about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so have some mentors, you, you know, sometimes you don't talk to them for years and other times it's every every other week um, that that can, you really trust their advice and their feedback um, to help you make good decisions. You might be getting a call from a couple of people every other week um, <laughs> <laughs> who are potentially on this podcast right now. Yeah. So be ready. <laughs> That would be great. I, I I love mentoring people, so I I'm I'm happy to get those calls. Those are much more fun than most of the calls I get. And and I think you have in many ways uh, provided a lot of uh, provided a lot of mentorship to me. And I don't want to speak for Kalia, but I I bet she would say the same. Um, you know, just by being the leader that you are in SSO um, and in OT, and just the way that you hold yourself and and interact with people, so. Um, I've learned a lot just by hanging out with you and um, smiling with you, but also having hard conversations with you. Um, and it's been a real um, wayfinder uh, for me as an early career person. So I really appreciate that and have really benefited from just being in your orbit or in your boat, as we're saying. <laughs> yes, yes. And you absolutely can, can speak for me on that. So I share that sentiment and Sort of as I referenced er earlier, you know, Betsy and I have had a had a couple couple conversations about sort of her journey into becoming a dean, a vice provost, and um, sort of what that could possibly look like for for me um, here in North Carolina or wherever I I find myself in the next little bit. So you better not be leaving. So I'm not. <laughs> look, nobody hear this as oh, is Khalil on the market? Oh. I am not. Like when you're trying to get tenure, you stay put. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So well, awesome. well, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and to all of our listeners, thank you for continuing to listen. And we will see you next time on our next episode of Dr. Thoughts. All right, y'all. Bye.